for March 30th, 2009. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 39. Chips are free. Dinner extra. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Rather, and we have uh, a panel with us tonight. And to introduce them, we will all answer the question, what is the most embarrassing piece of pop culture that you will admit to enjoying? Let's go in, uh, let's go in reverse alphabetical order this time, starting with Mr. Ryan Sheely. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Yeah, it's been a long hiatus, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be back. You've been, you've been busy. Uh, has there been any news in your life that you care to share on the podcast? Ooh, no, none that I care to share. <laughs> I like, you know, what happens on the podcast stays in the podcast. Fair, um, fair enough. You know, I, I'm sure someone will put the pieces together, uh, soon enough, but, um, uh, you know, that is, I, I have, I have two spheres of my life and I like to keep them as separate as possible. I understand. Possible. <laughs> you're, you're a Well, suffice it to say then in another sphere of, of Mr. Sheely's life, something has gone very well and congratulations on that. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, um, I think, you know, maybe p- at least part of the reason I want to compartmentalize is I think my secret, you know, my, my pop culture secret shame, I was going to say gossip girl, um, but I guess too many people share that, and that's too much of like almost like a fake shame. Then my, I think my real recent uh, sort of pop cultural shame is, is I've rediscovered my love for like mid '90s female um, like alternative rock uh, acoustic songs. Oh I mean, God damn you! <laughs> God damn really you! Scoop you? Did I just scoop you on that one? <laughs> <laughs> you totally did, and I was I was staying off Gossip Girl specifically because I thought you were going to take it. We're like we're like two uh, female roommates whose uh, <laughs> cycles become synchronized. Yeah, our cycles um, are totally synchronized. Yeah, no, I was watching the uh, Austin City Limits with Sarah McLaughlin the other day. Wow! And uh, you know, let me tell you. Uh, that she can certainly belt out a belty belt. Yeah, same. I could just the other day out of nowhere. Uh, I just, I just really wanted to hear where have all the cowboys gone by Paula Cole, and it's just, and I just, and I, and I just really uh, belted it out. I put it on, queued it up on the YouTube, and just uh, did it, did it right. Who else? Uh, I mean, who else can we name in this thing? Uh, <sighs> Lisa Loeb. I mean, but Lisa Loeb, I feel mm-hmm. like like that mm-hmm. is uh, less of a shame. Natalie Imbruglia. Uh, Meredith Brooks. Mm, yeah, uh, I'm a bitch. I'm a lover. I'm a child. I'm a mother. <laughs> a sinner. A saint. Do not do Please it. don't be ashamed. Uh, Jill Sobule. Ooh, that's a, that's a deep one. That's a deep cut. Uh, who actually, who had the Kissing a Girl song before Katy Perry had the Kissing a Girl song? What is, uh, I'm not familiar with that one. Oh, it's uh, it's about how like you know how her friend came over and she kissed her, mm. and it was slightly less. Did she, did she like it? Well, yes, she she did. I mean, her um, her big uh, her big revelation was I might do it again. That mm. was the, you know that was the the money shot, as it were. Well, that is <laughs> that, that that really puts it in the uh, you know in the nineties. That dates it. Yeah, right. Absolutely. It was also right. It was also not done. For and the, all know is that we like it when we do it. When we right. kiss a girl, we like it. But we 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 may not be here to do it again. <laughs> um, and uh, 
uh, perhaps Ani DeFranco or Tori Amos or uh, oh god, I could go on and on and on as my <laughs> as my iTunes playlist. I like, I like to keep it on the on the more superficial end. I like to even keep it on the you know the sixpence, none the richer. Um, I mean, I guess. Deep Blue Something's a Dude, but that, that, could, that song could have just have been easily be <laughs> there, sung by a, there a woman. Are, there were a number of whiny guy singer-songwriters who could have well, who could as well have been, right, you know. Right, right. But I've been, I've, been hitting that, I've been hitting that hard for the last few months. So, wow. Um, well, yeah. cool. That's, uh, that's a good one for you. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Ryan. And then on to Peter Fenzel. Woohoo! How's it going, man? How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I'm all right. How you doing? How you doing? Yeah. I'm acting real masculine because I'm about to make an ass of myself. <laughs> <laughs> really? More than Excuse Ryan my language. and I did? I, no, no, no. I mean, I don't know. I tend to be pretty public about these things. I think that my, probably the most embarrassing piece of pop culture that I'm really enthusiastic about is Naruto, is the, the Japanese ninja comic book Naruto, uh, which I've been following for quite a while. And I watch the scanlations when they come out every Friday. I mean, I mean, I wait until they're legally released in translation in the United States three years after they come out and don't want to find out what happens in the story after the part that I've read. I'm content to wait until the legal editions come out. No, no, no. Every Friday I wait with bated breath, see what's going to happen to the little ninja who's got the demon fox locked inside his chest. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. You know, I could talk your ear off about it, uh, but I don't think that I get the same repartee going as I would with, uh, as Ryan would with you talking about. (laughs) It is definitely, it's not necessarily in my wheelhouse. Yeah, you know, well, you know, what can you do? Not not everything can fit in your wheelhouse, Matt, although you've managed to cram a fair amount in there. (laughs) (laughs) It is a big wheelhouse. Actually, and you know what? You know what's actually kind of really embarrassing, and I'll put that out there, is that sometimes when I'm about to go on stage for a comedy show and I'm really nervous, I start doing like uh, like hands things with my hands that are reminiscent of the hand signs that the ninjas in Naruto make, uh, in order to sort of like calm myself down and focus myself. They use uh, sort of hand signals based on the Chinese zodiac um, to sort of cast their ninja magic spells. Wow! And so every once in a while, I, I, uh, I'll do that to try to sort of like focus myself and calm myself down and, and stuff. So now. Now everybody who listens to this podcast knows what a ridiculous basket case I am. Are you, uh, I mean, does it work? Uh, yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, the reason that it works is that it, it you get into a weird posture and you're sort, it's sort of transformative, right? It's like I, I'm not doing something that I would normally do. Therefore, I'm ready to go out on stage and do the things that are not normal for me. Um, so it's a pretty, it works pretty well. You know, plus my chi gets all centered, and then I get to shoot fireballs out of my nose or whatever the hell goes on. Naruto. I, I, I gotta get to. Fireball. That is that does not happen every every improv show. That's... <laughs> uh, and uh, Matt Belinky. Yeah. Hey, how you doing? I am well. How are you? I'm I'm sort of stealing myself to tell you the the thing. You this know, this has the... become uh, God. This has become uh, kind of intimate all of a sudden. Like, <laughs> this is like taxi cab confessions, but like I don't I don't get a free ride. These are taxi cab confessions you don't have to pay to go to like where you're going. <laughs> it's like um, cash cab. I think you confused it with cash cab. All right, what is it? <laughs> I am a great admirer of the music of Meatloaf, and. Oh, yeah. uh, 
It was the very first concert I went to when I was like I was like twelve or something, and I went to see like Meatloaf at the Hartford Civic Center, um, because you know this was when Meatloaf did you know Bad Out of Hell, and he did like I think maybe one other album, and then he sort of like retired from music. And he this is a true story. He actually was teaching high school gym for a while because if we associate Meatloaf with one thing, it's physical fitness. Um, right. And then and then he sort of like got like twenty years later got back together with with Jim Steinman who actually writes all. Songs and they did you know Bat Out of Hell two, Back into Hell I believe which is like I don't know if it's, it counts the oxymoron or something, um, and I I do that that sometimes when I'm alone in the apartment I will I will put on Meatloaf and I will sing along with the Meatloaf and then I will imagine myself uh like like in a Meatloaf music video like singing the Meatloaf in like a variety of dramatic locations such as like on top <laughs> of a tall building or a cliff or like perhaps a waterfall. Nice. So basically, like, 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 I have a whole meatloaf uh, fantasy life going on. <laughs> now, are, are there particular times that you you turn, you know, in the way that uh, that that Pete turns to the the Naruto hand gestures before going on stage? Are, are there particular times when you seek the solace of meatloaf, or is it just can, can you just burst into meatloaf at any point in time? I, I would say that those times are when I have about twenty five minutes to spare. Like <laughs> <laughs> the meatloaf song. <laughs> You really you don't want to put out a meatloaf track if like you have any place to be because like usually it takes like you know five minutes to get to the first chorus. Yes, <laughs> they are. Um, they and are, I got yeah. and I gotta like, say that like I every time I go to karaoke, the first thing I do is check to see if they have any new meatloaf songs because the meatloaf selection is really not to my liking. The, my favorite meatloaf tracks are not yet available for karaoke purposes, but I'm my, my letter writing campaign goes on unabated. You know that part of Shawshank Redemption where Andy Dufresne writes like a letter every day until they get from the prison library? I'm doing the same thing with, with Meatloaf, basically. What song do you want to have be on there? What song is missing? Um, oh, jeez. Let me see. There's a song called Everything Louder Than Everything Else, which I believe is also known in parentheses as the Wasted Youth song. Which is... <laughs> Which is a, which is pretty. I I definitely is is a good sort of like psych up song. Mm-mm-mm. How are you made and, aware? And, and the sort of the sort of like pre chorus is like if they say the thrill is gone, then it's time to take it back. If the <laughs> thrill is gone, then I say we take it back. Which is like I think it's supposed to be an allusion to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Or maybe that's just maybe that's just very specific in my pop. Anyway. So that's, that one's from is that from Bad Out of Hell too? That's from like the second go round, or is that? Uh, I from think it might Meatloaf be from 1. like 0. Welcome to the Neighborhood, which was his follow up to Bad Out of Hell too. Okay, but I maybe I may my my Meatloaf is sort of like all jumbled up and and mislabeled in my MP3 player. So like even though I know the songs really well, I don't necessarily know uh, their taxonomies. Hmm. How were you made aware of Meatloaf's oeuvre? Uh, when when you were young, was it something that like your parents introduced you to, or something? Yeah, my, my dad was like a big Meatloaf fan. Oh. And, I mean, I, th- I think that's part. of I mean, I I sort of like if my dad had not loved it, and I had just sort of like come across it in I don't know in one of my friends is like, yo, there's this guy who's gonna blow your mind. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'd like it. I sort of associated with, like the halcyon days of of uh, back at uh, Twelve Lakeview Drive. 
Well, the um, uh, I Would Do Anything for Love was a big MTV music video hit. I mean, that's how Meatloaf got on my radar. And it was only later that um, Paradise by the Dashboard Light I, was something that I knew. But I, I sort of went, like, sort of from Bat Out of Hell 2 backwards. Um, yeah. Which means that you went out of, back into hell before you left hell in the first place. <laughs> that's right. But then you went out of hell twice, despite the fact that that's, you only got into it once, and then you ended think, up in I hell. I think that's pretty much exactly how uh, the, the, the Divine Comedy worked, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you went into hell, and then you specifically to, to come out of hell, but yeah. another, another way, through yeah, the, back, yeah. the back door, so the back to speak. Door. Yeah, the bottom, the bottom door. Yeah, did, exactly. did anyone else hear that they're actually doing like a big-budget movie based on uh, The Inferno? I heard really? that at some that's something you hear every few years, I think. I, I, wait, know, I thought they were doing a video or a movie on the Inferno. Or am I totally conflating two different stories? Wait, you went Skypey for a second. They're doing a what based on the Inferno? I, I thought that they were doing – the movie was going to be based on a video game that's based on the Inferno. Oh, really? I heard, I heard about the video game based on the Inferno. I feel like the movie is – Another, I feel like the, you know, it's like one of those things where like sometimes you get like two wild herb projects that like you know hit at the same time. That like this is sort of like the same thing, but instead of like you know the, the two volcano movies in the same summer, it's sort of like a video game and a movie both based on the Inferno. But what what I want to know is like when is somebody going to make a movie slash video game about like Purgatorio? Well, purgat- <laughs> like where you have to, it's like for the it's for the power pad or something, and you have to run up the hill. It just takes a long. <laughs> it takes a long. You basically have to play it for five hundred years before. Yeah. You- <laughs> it's for the Wii. It's for the Wii Fit. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, did you read all? Uh, did you read all three uh, volumes of the Divine Comedy in college? I did. I did. Although I, I read is not necessarily like <laughs> used about the third one. The yeah. third one, Would I you- sort of like. Would you agree uh, with me that they they are go in descending order of interest? Um, that is, I mean, the I, Inferno I feel, is very uh, interesting. Purgatorio slightly less so, and Paradiso is rather dull. I mean, I think it's rather dull to us. I I feel a little bad, like like we as like let's say um, not Italian, not medieval non-believers or like certainly we don't believe in that cosmology in a very literal way yes like the inferno is the most you know interesting to us because it's like you know very graphic and everything but i feel that like if this is your world then paradiso there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there that like we are not able to appreciate on in in the way that like dante's audience would have been able to because they they had contemporary references that they could make sense of yeah, I mean, it, because they had contemporary references because they were, um, you know, dipped in Catholic theology from like a very young age. So like they understood the the uh, the sort of like you know uh, worldview that he was mapping out and Paradiso. And I mean, also because like this is you know life in the Middle Ages is sort of nasty, brutish, and short, and Paradiso is sort of like what it's all about. And I think that a, a compelling depiction of like what you're, you know, spending your whole life trying to achieve, you know, what, what is the, the ultimate goal in like, you know, a Catholic life well-lived, um, you know, was really exciting and was, you know, a really spiritual experience reading the Paradiso. And I just feel that like, you know, we as modern readers, like can never really experience it in this. I don't know. 
Right? Sure. I think maybe maybe I, I'm, I'm being too kind to Dante. Maybe it's just like, yes, it's boring compared with the other two. So, guys, I found a way that you can actually experience Paradiso on Earth, which is to go to <laughs> www.paradiso.com, which is possibly the awesomest website I've ever seen. Uh, uh, in case you don't know, <laughs> that sound of people being hey, the looking. chips are free. Dinner's extra. So, Paradiso is apparently a Mexican restaurant in Grand Forks, North Dakota, in Fargo. It's got like six different locations across Bismarck, Fargo, and various areas of North Dakota. <laughs> and it has this picture of this chubby little Mexican girl shaking the maracas. <laughs> I think it's, like, it's not even a picture. It's yeah. an animated GIF, I would say. Uh, yeah, right. It goes on forever. She never stops. And, and just, just to give you a sense of how exotic Mexican restaurants are in North Dakota, the main selling point is that the chips are free and dinner is extra. <laughs> which is sort of like an Italian restaurant being like, come to our restaurant. We have free bread. <laughs> all the olive oil you could drink. Yeah. Wow. I would go to Grand Forks just to have some free chips and then peace we have, out. If we have any listeners who are anywhere near North Dakota who can give us any report on the Paradiso Mexican restaurant. <laughs> we would like you – yeah, if you are from North Dakota, we would like you to uh, go to Paradiso. Uh, take Unless some, it's underwater. Stay away from the flooding. Be careful of that. Uh and take some pictures and email yeah. them to us. Email them to us at podcastedoverthinkingit.com. Ooh, they uh, have a VIP club. I'll also, uh, Sheely typed this into our, our back channel Skype chat. Uh, Dan Harris has been set by Universal Pictures to write Dante's Inferno, a live-action film based on the Electronic Arts vid game. Oh, it's from oh, it Variety. Is, it is actually ba- – so it's a video game based on Dante's Inferno and a movie based on the video game. That's right. Game. Because we all you know how good the, movies taste. Wow. You have to use the um, uh, all the variety slides. Variety speed, right. right. Yeah, it's a, it's a vid game in which players journey through the depths of hell. Yeah. I love the second quest when you play as a minor Vatican bureaucrat who gets to pick the higher bishops that you really, really hate and say terrible things about them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Universal acquired the t- – here's a little tidbit. Universal acquired the title in the fall in a four-studio bidding battle – before the EA game even had a formal title. Ooh. Well, I mean, what, was what, the, they... what was the formal title going to be? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> what else were you going to call it? Yeah. Bernie let Place. Me, okay, wait. But let me ask you this. Like, theoretically, um, the Divine Comedy is in the public domain. Anyone can make a Divine Comedy movie. So what they were bidding on was this sort of brilliant way of modernizing. The, whatever they're doing in the video game is what was so valuable. Well, it's probably like it's like a a like very stylized depiction of of hell or something. I, my, my guess is that it was like sold as like, like the hell video, video game, basically. Was I mean, that? if I had to guess, I don't know anything about it. I would say that it's basically like a remake of What Dreams May Come, where Beatrice has been taken to hell, and you are traveling to hell to like bring her back from the underworld. And Beatrice so- is played by Cuba Gooding Jr. Is that or that's the What Dreams May Come? No, no, I. <laughs> Human Gooding Jr. would be Virgil in this version is what, oh, what this okay. comes down to. That's, um, that's the problem with making a movie out of Inferno. There's no plot, at least for the central character. No, but that's why I think it's going to be like, you know, like, you know, how far would you go to save the woman you love? It's your destiny. Only you could go down to hell and rescue this girl. I oh, you have to yes. make a choice. In the trailer, somebody's going to be like, only you could save her. 
<laughs> That's Matt and I have been pet peeving about this over email this week of how sick we are of movies that are like, only you can solve this problem. And it's like, there's no evidence to support the fact that this is the only person who can do it. I think the Chun-Li movie was the one you were talking about, right, Matt? Right, because in the, in the Chun-Li movie, there is like a, uh, a character who actually was not in Street Fighter 2. It was in Street Fighter 1 called uh, Gen or Jen. Right. He's right. in Street Fighter 4. Yeah. Right. Okay. And, and yeah. he is like, you know a mentor who teaches Chung Li knows like a fair amount of Kung Fu, but she like learns like, you know, a kill bill level of like Kung Fu badassery through Jen. And before he teaches her, he tells her that like only you can defeat Bison and save your father. But clearly he is a lot more skilled at Kung Fu than she is. That's why he's <laughs> teaching her these advanced techniques. And it's like, it's never really explained. Why don't you go do it? If you know how to like do all this crazy stuff that she doesn't know how to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is keep in mind. This is one of the minor problems with with Street Fighter. This is not even in my top ten list of things wrong with Street Fighter. But it's a problem that's wrong with movies in general because they all talk about how characters have destinies and only they can do this thing, and it's it just it's ridiculous. It's like, is there a script doctor who goes to every action movie in Hollywood and is like, no, 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 don't show me the main character fighting the bad guy. Explain it to me first. <laughs> I want you to talk to me about an exhaustive detail about why this guy needs to fight, how he's the only one who can do it. You know, like give some more, give some more justification to what's about to happen rather than just showing it to us. Are, are there any films that show a set of like 15 to 20 people who could possibly beat the bad guy and then shows how they are all weeded out except for one? It's like well, the more, selection more, mechanism. Uh, that's Mortal Kombat, the movie right there. And the selection mechanism involves a kick-ass uh, techno soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> Fight! No, but you know what? But I think by the end of the movie, if I recall correctly, Johnny Cage sort of steps aside because like he just knows that that Liu Kang has to face this guy alone for no reason. <laughs> yeah, well, Johnny Cage gets to beat Goro in the movie, and that's that's he hits him with a low blow, and that's his own personal victory. That's where his story arc ends. I think the I mean, Kombat movie is actually much better than it has any right to be. Probably better correct. than you guys remember. Like, like yeah. you guys, like take a moment, think about how good you remember the Mortal Kombat movie being. Now bump it up a letter grade, and that's how good it really is. Oh, it's like an A plus <laughs> plus. No, it's like a, it's like a B minus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it a is. B minus. That's right. <laughs> It's a good movie. It's, it was the best. I think it was the best, um, second best video game movie. Back back when video game movies were really, really a joke. Before they even tried to make big budget video game movies at all, I always said that uh, Mortal Kombat the movie was the second best video game inspired movie ever. The best being probably Pokemon: The Powerful One, <laughs> which I think was marginally better than stuff like Lara Croft Tomb Raider or the Super Mario Brothers movie. But I guess that's based hey, what on was, what was Pokemon: The Power of One. What happened? That's that the first one? Pokemon movie. That's the one where like. Where like Mewtwo escapes and Pikachu has to like the tears of Pikachu have to resurrect the dead. Yes, that one is messed up. That one, I, I saw that movie and it's supposed to be a movie for children, yeah. and it begins with like Mewtwo escaping. From, Mewtwo is like a genetically engineered Pokemon who's yeah. supposed to have like you know psychic powers beyond reckoning, and it begins with a series where like he escapes and he like burns down the lab, killing all the scientists, and the last scientist is like like amid the wreckage of the lab is like speaking into like a tape recorder and he's like. We set out to create the ultimate Pokemon, and we succeeded. <laughs> Cut to like a shot of the island from a mile away. Giant fireball goes up in the skies. All the scientists are like consumed in a holocaust. They're like, Pokemon, gotta catch them up. It's you and me. I don't know, it's, it's Medea 
this dude. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Do not take any children under eight to see Pokemon <laughs> of one. Because, like, there are some messed up things that happen in that movie that, that like, are not cool for American audiences. Yeah. Like, I assume in Japan they raise their kids, you know, to be familiar with – I don't know. Japan is a messed up place. <laughs> what, just because of, of the bomb or, like – no, I mean, I think I, I was going to say because of the vending machines that dispense soiled panties. But... <laughs> are, are they soiled what... or are they improved? I mean, I guess, I guess soiled implies that, like, some sort of... You're a real glass of cap full kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> let's say used, used panties. How are you not in corporate middle management, Max? <laughs> With that kind of ability to wrench out a positive attitude in the darkest you're like, of circumstances. You're like the Don Draper of, of panties. Of panties. <laughs> Uh, it's no, Pete. And I, will say, I keep waiting for you to write the uh, to write the post about you know one of your pet peeves going back years is yeah. when the good guy defeats the bad guy by pointing out that the bad guy has a choice. Yes, and that it's causes like, the bad guy to stop doing bad things and to in fact start doing good things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's like it's very similar to the moment at the end of a wonderful tick episode, um, where there's the world's most comfortable chair, and the villain is tricked into sitting into the world's most comfortable <laughs> chair, and he says, "Oh, maybe I don't have to conquer the world. Maybe I could just sit in this chair." <laughs> and it's like one of the biggest, one of the most prominent uh, culprits of this is like uh, Spider-Man Two. It happens yeah, all the time in in movies where people are being brain controlled because somebody is like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Time out! Time out!" Out. you don't have to be brain controlled you have a choice and it's like no he doesn't he's brain controlled that's why he doesn't have a choice like you're not supposed to be able to reason with him because there's a machine that is controlling his brain uh, um, no it is a huge pet peeve of mine whenever anybody says wait 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 i know you're about to destroy the world but have you considered that you have other options and it's like you don't want to do this i mean you're not that man they talk about the scene in uh, No Country for Old Men about this is great. He's like, oh, people always say this to me. And then he kills the guy. You know, it's like, you know, people always so say. So you don't it. have to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's basically like it's, it's awful, awful seminar-based screenwriting, right? It's like make sure your character has a clearly delineated choice. Oh, I guess I'll do that by putting exactly those words in my scripts. <laughs> right at the Right at the, like, all is lost moment, or after we've, like, broken into Act 3 and we're about to, like, well, was, get to the climax. Even the absent mind control, you know, Anton Chigurh is like, yeah, I know I have a choice. I had a choice on the last 50 people I killed also, and I yeah. killed them. Yeah, exactly. It's like, That's, oh, man. You see, that was my choice. <laughs> it's like being Skeletor, I choose to continue <laughs> to be Skeletor rather than to revert and decide to act like somebody other than Skeletor. Uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty ridiculous. And it, the, the heroes do it too. They do it to the heroes all the time where it's the hero's about to screw something up or ruin something. And they're like, oh, wait, hero, you could do something really easy and make your life a lot better. And it's like, oh, okay. You know, movie's over. Yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. I mean, is this? Do you think this is a genre thing? Like, are there? I mean, are there? I'm trying to think of action movies that that don't fall into this trap. Like, so, what is the? All, all, it's easy to point out the the sort of bad, schlocky way of doing it. What's the What's the sort of flip side? What's the positive oh, way of? Oh uh, well, the, I'd say I'd say like if I were to come up with a a a movie that is the exact opposite of this, I would definitely say Crank. 
which is <laughs> you create a powerful, powerful imperative that forces your character not only to do something but to do it right now. Um, and speed as well, because speed's kind of like the grandfather of crank in a certain well, sense. Crank is speed with a person, basically. Right, right, exactly. Uh-huh. For those who haven't seen the movie, so speed is about a bus that has to go 50 miles an hour or else it blows up. Crank is about a human being who's injected with a poison that says that if his like adrenaline goes down or his heart rate slows down, heart rate, he, heart rate, yeah, his heart rate, he dies. So it's like speed, but he's like, oh man, I got to stay alive by keeping my adrenaline up. So he doesn't just go across town. He like rides on the top of cars or is like having random <laughs> sex or getting in random fights, um, and it's all because he wants to inexorably find the person who did this to him and get revenge before he drops dead. Um, well, and at the end of the crank- movie, sorry, the finish up, sorry. Well, I was just saying that, like, it's not a spoiler to say that, like, the, the crank guy is destined to die, and he's destined to die in, like, a huge way, because that and is the yet, way that he's headed. And yet, Crank 2 is coming out, <laughs> which is ridiculous, for gosh darn ridiculous. That, I, like, I do have to say that, like, if I were to make a list, if let's say, like, you know, six months ago before this happened, if I were to make a list of, like, ten movies which can never, ever have a sequel... <laughs> There's like, never crank been a deader down. man. There has never <laughs> been a deader man in the history of movies than the hero of Crank at the end of Crank. He is so incredibly dead. Well, and it's amazing Johnson. because the premise of the sequel is that he has to carry a certain. Um, it's like he's he now is like an electric heart, or like a mo- some kind of like yeah. uh, ventricular assist device, and he must carry like ca- like basically ha- have a certain level of electrical charge at all times. Yeah. And thus he's like sticking his finger in sockets and like rubbing <laughs> up against the old ladies to get like uh, static electricity. And I can't uh, wait. Like I I, I just wanted to say that like I saw Craig one. It is a great movie. Yes. Like it's not I mean it's not a great movie in the way that let's say like The Godfather is a great movie. No, but, but like if you're looking for like million. a fun cheesy action movie, yeah. like like it's everything that like snakes on a plane is not. You know, like yeah, snakes on a yeah. plane where like, oh, it's gonna be so much like cheesy, campy, you know, like stand up and cheer fun. And it was just sort of like boring and lame. Whereas like crank is actually like you'll laugh your ass off through the whole movie and like yeah. end up totally entertained. And be like, Yeah! Yeah! So <laughs> yeah. And you'll get all cranked up. It'll yeah. be great. Yeah. No, John Travolta at the end of the Thomas Jane Punisher movie is very dead. Very, very dead. So uh, I'll, close out like this, I'll close out this circle by admitting that I cried during the season finale to Ally McBeal. On to other... <laughs> wait, which, no, wait, which season finale? Wait, oh, the, sorry, series, the, series, the, season? the series finale. Oh, uh. What happens? Does she die? No, she she moves away with her daughter because she realizes that her daughter's happiness is more important than her career. Wait, when spoilers? Did she <laughs> <laughs> is that what I remember? She was like dating Robert Downey Jr. I don't no, think she yeah, had a she, she she was dating Robert Downey Jr. and then he got locked up, not in the show, but right. uh, oh, you know, in real life. In real life, yeah. And then she was dating Bon Jovi for a while, but he was just a working class guy from New Jersey, and so they didn't have a lot uh, in common. Yeah. No, but he when lives for the she fight, have a, when always... she have a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember this happening. I remember her having like a dancing baby who was like, you know, subconsciously begging her. So that was just on the internet at the same time as the show. She was. No, um, <laughs> no, 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 no. There was the dancing, and the dancing baby in Ally McBeal was the uh, literal representation of her biological clock, or the literal fantasy representation of her biological right. clock. So right. it's um so she uh no apparently she was like an egg donor 
this is a this is a terrible thing that several television shows. Oh, was uh, it like a fully all of which, grown kid? All of which I walk, yeah, yeah, like a twelve-year-old girl. Yeah. Oh, that's lame. That's like when they like introduced the the and third actually, kid on Married you know with who Children. Played the kid uh, yeah. is who? Hayden Panettiere of Hughes. Wow. As a as a young girl. And you're Wait. saying she sprung fully grown out of Calista Flockhart's head? <laughs> <laughs> In armor? Like, invincible? Right. <laughs> Which the- sounds ridiculous, but honestly, like, Calista Flockhart does not have birthing hips, so it's really the only one she can't reproduce. <laughs> right. She, yeah, no, and then uh, Calista Flockhart dipped her in the, you know, in the, the well of Robert Downey Jr. I don't know. Anyway, she moves. <laughs> she moves to. She moves to New York so that her daughter can be closer to something that's important to her. And oh. uh, there is a tearful Statue goodbye. Where all this, <laughs> there's a Sorry. tearful goodbye where all the series regulars stand on the curb and uh, wave as she's walking away. And it got a little dusty. Got a little dusty in the living room when uh, <laughs> uh, when it was happening. Oh, it's so sad. I know. She went away, and they're her friends, but she has to go. Yeah. If I leave you, <laughs> oh, will you watch reruns of Ali McBeal? Some times in our lives. Hey, is there any? Are there any meatloaf songs about wistful remembrance of things that have happened in the past? <laughs> oh, well, wow. I mean, yeah, there's there's two out of three ain't bad. There's a lot of them, right? Yeah, I mean, I think objects Pete, in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I think yeah. Pete's Pete's point was they're all about that, aren't they? Oh, okay. No, I mean, I thought, I thought you were going to talk about meatloaf more, but I guess not. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. Ah. <laughs> uh... Well, we came up with the question because we had a, a question, and now you know we're more than half an hour in, and uh, we probably probably the ship has sailed we're on this to the main but events. Are there whole are there whole categories of um, popular culture of entertainment where you have a blind spot where you will be totally into it despite the fact that you know it's bad, mm. you know, and that uh, and for me, for my obviously mine is like maudlin sentimentality, you know, especially in television shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't feel guilty about watch about enjoying Gossip Girl. I think Gossip Girl is a really well-written show and it's well put together and it's, it's you know, totally good. Uh, I don't think it's a model for how to structure the Republic, but, <laughs> you know. But... Well, speaking of models of how to structure a Republic, uh, Pete, do you feel guilty about watching 24? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, heck no. We have a fun time watching 24. No, I feel a little bit guilty about it, but, I mean, we do make fun of it a lot at our 24 parties, and they are <laughs> <laughs> so it's a if we watch that show you really have to make fun of it but then you realize that you're they're in on the joke everybody's in on the joke you know, right and everybody's having a good time but yeah it is a great model of government by the way is, is just create, <laughs> create a government and then bring a guy in to work for the government and the first thing he does is everything that is counter to the principles and the laws of aforementioned government Oh, what are you he, is, do? he is the he's the fourth, right? He's like the other check and balance, um, you know. But who watches the Jack Bauer? 
Yeah, what we do. Well, it'd be like the Plato's Republic is like, okay, you have workers, you have warriors, and you have philo- uh, philosophers, and they all are, or, are exist in an organized system. And then off to the side, you have three or four people that do everything that needs doing. <laughs> like these people right. are, are above the law, and like we should never ask what they're doing because we're just going to get in the way. So it's like the sort of the diehard way of running a country is like everything that you can do to establish a framework for people to actually do things is useless because all you're going to do is get in the way of the people who are really going to get things done and really well, fix things. Well, right, because it says that even good institutions are corruptible, and all you really need is like a single virtuous person, uh, or that's all that you can really rely on is a single virtuous person, um, and and that there will always be sort of corruption or or sort of uh, uh, evil, and so it always kind of breaks down to that, and always has it's, to... it's a it's a cowboy paradigm, you know. It's that the railroad company is always evil, and the one cowboy who's willing to stand up to the rustlers and the thugs is the you know the force for good. Yeah, but that person can never. That person is always like riding off into the sunset at the end of the episode or at the end of the film, right? That person can't. I'm thinking of the end of John Ford's My Darling Clementine, which is the Wyatt Earp story, which is his version of the Wyatt Earp story, where right. the camera stays with Clementine in town and you see, oh, who is it? Henry Fonda riding off into the sunset while you stay stationary in civil society there with, uh, with Clementine. So that the, um, the safety of the community is dependent on a person whose actions uh, make it necessary that he not be included in the community. Right, which is why the community is generally pessimistic about its prospects for long-term safety. (laughs) (laughs) Right, it's like, well, I guess eventually there's going to be a drug gang that takes over. We might as well enjoy this while it lasts. (laughs) I thought we weren't going to talk about The Wire on this podcast. (laughs) Or that, like, Rorschach and The Watch. I mean, I think a lot of superheroes are about are about like you know people the reason that they wear costumes is not just to protect themselves but because like um they they could never be part of civil they could never be accepted by civil society because their actions while necessary are unacceptable on some level I would say it's probably an outgrowth of courtly love convention because usually in old epics you think about the guy who who establishes society as kind of being the father of it as well mm-hmm. as like he not only does get to win, but he has to like gets to like have sex with the queen and have a bunch of princes who get to like continue on his line. Um, but you get to medieval literature and you get to these ideas of chastity and courtly love, where the hero is somebody who has this forbidden desire that they're never able to actually exercise, and that's what part of what makes them virtuous. And so maybe you can draw a line from. Guys mm-hmm. like you know Lancelot, uh, who you know, yeah, he's going to have a tragic end because he's never able to create a line because we have this this Puritan ethic, you know, pseudo Puritanistic ethic, this like this chastity ethic that prevents us from believing that our own endeavors, our worldly endeavors, the the, the bone and flesh of ours, can persist beyond ourselves to greater mm-hmm. glory than that which God would bestow upon the earth. Um, we we won't believe those people can really make anything happen on earth past a certain point. And maybe that is what extends into the sort of the cowboy idiom, which is that, yeah, it's not that you can never have sex with the woman that you love because she's the queen and it has to be chased it's that you can never stick around and have a family because you always got to be hitting the open road you know and and that's that's sort of a road trip is like the new chastity uh you know moving to a new city is the new like command to not get married i guess does that make sense tennyson i mean tennyson takes that up right in ulysses where uh where ulysses you know is discovers having had all these adventures come home slaughtered everyone in the hall uh, killed all the 
unfaithful slave girls and, you know, shacked up with Penelope again, discovers that this, like, domestic life is not for him so much. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think he sets off for Antarctica in a canoe or something like that in, you know. Um, but the great, you know, the great line from that is, as if to breathe were life. You know, I'm, I'm supposed to sit here in my hall and dispense uh, justice uh, unequal laws unto a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. Like, is Indiana Jones really supposed to sit around watching over Shia LaBeouf until he can become an adult and take care of himself? Yeah. Like, no, we all know that Indiana Jones really is insulted by the prospect of actually taking care of his family because his family is stupid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or at least is less, is, is more stupid than his adventures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's because he's an adventure hero, not because this is something that people in general should do. Although, although I guess. Although could, in, yeah. in, in, in a Jones is maybe a, a, a different uh, paradigm because he's more of a Superman character where his alter ego is very much a part of society. And is not, as opposed to, let's say, like a Batman type character really wants nothing to do with society and, and his, his secret identity, you know, like, like his Bruce Wayne character only exists as a cover. He gets right, no pleasure right. out of being Bruce Wayne. Whereas that, like, Superman, you know, loves Metropolis and loves being Clark Kent and loves being a reporter and everything. And, and Indiana Jones loves being a professor and everything. So that, like, it's not that, like, Indiana Jones is an eternal outsider. He's definitely a social creature. And it's yeah. just that he has this, he has this other, other self. So maybe, you know, not, I guess not, uh, what I'm saying is not all adventure heroes are outsiders. Well, yeah, there's also the idea that they have to give up their powers to live in society, right? Which is the sort of um, Highlander slash City of Angels way of doing things, which is like the ultimate victory is when, you know, the ultimate prize is when you become human. Um, You become sort of less than you were, but more than you were because humans are great because they're the audience that's paying to watch the movie and they want their egos affirmed by knowing that they're superior to superheroes. Or elves. Or elves. Like Arwen. Yes, like exactly. This, this weekend, uh, this weekend I went to see Monsters vs. Aliens. Oh, yeah. Spoiler alert. Monsters vs. Aliens spoilers here. Go for it. You know, at one point, um, the, the, what is it, Renee Zellweger, the, the Susan is the 40-year-old woman. Uh, not the 40-year-old 40 40 woman? No, that's, that's the lamest superhero ever. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the 40-foot woman. Oh, okay. Um, she, becomes the, she becomes a monster at the beginning of the movie. And for like the first half of the yeah. movie, she's like, oh, I don't want to be a monster. If only I could go back to being a normal person. But like halfway through right. the movie, she realizes that, wow, she's got incredible powers and that she's able to like do things and help people in a way that she couldn't. And then towards the end of the movie, she actually does temporarily lose her powers, is back to being a normal person, and goes to great lengths to uh, become, once again, the 40-foot woman and regain her powers. That, like, it's, but it's the same thing, that she's given the chance to rejoin society, but she has to give up everything she is. Or, I mean, look at, uh, look at X-Men, and especially the, the character of Rogue, yeah. who has to decide, like, you know, she's everything that makes her special – is also like a curse and that, you know, she can, she can choose to give it up, but then she'll be normal. Yeah. It's a Superman three plot, right? Um, yeah. Or is that Superman no, three? Superman yeah. two. Superman two. Superman three is much, much crazier. <laughs> Superman three is Richard Pryor. <laughs> yeah. Um, helps and then he designed a crazy Superman. computer. <laughs> and it synthesizes uh, kryptonite, except it uses the ingredients from his cigarette case to fill in the blanks. And uh, it ends up turning Superman into, like, evil, also Superman. And they struggle and they choke each other in a parking – in a uh, 
a dump, right? And like a car dump. Um, but no, Superman 2 is where he voluntarily gives up his powers to have a peaceful life with Lois Lane. And then he finds out the horrible consequences of that. It's, it's definitely a well-worn cliche. It's like the, it's the inverse of riding off into the sunset, right? Which is like, you know, settling down and, and becoming weak. Isn't this a quintessentially American idea that, you know, the stability of society is predicated on people doing unspeakable things? I'm saying that. What I'm do you mean saying, by unspeakable? Well, doing doing things that would certainly get you kicked out of the society uh, which you are doing those things to serve. So right, doing I mean, social, you look at, you look at any cowboy story, and they they quote unquote take the law into their own well, hands. Yeah, I'm saying. I mean, I'm thinking of American culture being being founded on you know the sort of displacement and eradication of the people who were living here before, and also the importation of slaves into america and you know creating this this uh enormous economic engine on you know land that was stolen and and labor that was with and lives that were stolen so that you know there's this idea that that the whole thing is kind of built on a lie uh that i think can can inform some of our some of our entertainment well, I think that that's more universalizable across cultures than it prob- you probably would think at first. Things like the rape of the Sabine women. Yeah, sure. Fair, uh, fair enough. Yeah, that there's, yeah. there's some kind of bad, violent act at the, uh, at the root of all this business. Yeah, like even Cain and Abel, like the, you know, the humanity, any civilization is going to be born to a certain degree out of a number of crimes. Um, yeah, right? even and, like and, and I guess you look at a- – yeah. Right, no, you look at the Aeneid, and I don't know, at least to me, like, the Trojans kind of come off as, like, the bad guys and the aggressors at the end, you know, in there. Yeah. I mean, right. I, guess, I guess it might be different if you're a Roman, but, like, you know, I don't, I don't think Aeneas is, like, a particularly, certainly, you know, towards the back half of the book, you know, it's a particularly noble character. Yeah, and like Turnus is not necessarily put forth as this terrible human being. He's just somebody. No, who I think Turnus is a very sympathetic guy compared with this Aeneas, who's you know yeah. certainly certainly I don't think you're supposed to like what he does to Dido. No, not yeah. that whole the book four, Dido. that whole book four of the Aeneid, he's sort of a douche the whole time, right? And he's sailing away, and you know, <laughs> yeah, 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 Dido's totally burning herself on her pyre and whatnot. Totally, and they're not even texting each other or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone sexting. There's no sexting going on at all. In the hey, immediate. we didn't plan this, but speaking of sexting, this is a thing. <laughs> Do not I wish sexting. that was the first time I had ever heard you use that, that segue. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been reading more and more like New York Times, you know, city section articles and things like this about like local teen convicted of child pornography for sending naked pictures of themselves, uh, you know, to boyfriend or girlfriend yes. on on the cell phone. Justice uh, is served. Yeah, right. Yeah, those that's, evil pornographers uh, need to be stopped. Yeah, shut no, down. right. And well, and these kids have to, in in some cases, have to like register as sex offenders for the rest of their lives. Is this just uh, has, as, that, has that actually happened? It has, in fact. No, no. What I'm talking about is like, has a 14 year old been made to register as a sex offender because she took naked pictures and sent them to her boyfriend? I don't think I know. I know exactly the articles you're talking about, and I'm betting that it's a lot of media hype about something which has never happened and will never happen. Well, yeah. I, you know, I'm I'm not sure about that because you see these things where there are like convictions for, uh, 
Right, but they're but they're juveniles. First of all, I don't know if you can be you can be a sex offender if you're you know like like you're not tried as an adult, and I don't think she's going to be tried as an adult for that. Well, we uh, we don't know. I, yeah, but that, I mean, I, I, I don't think there are laws. I don't think the law distinguishes between you know juvenile child pornography and adult child pornography. I think it's yeah. Otherwise, someone would exploit the shit out of that loophole, <laughs> right? Like, it's ripe for jury nullification. Is all I'm saying. Like, I, <laughs> this this strikes me as like some sort of prosecutor gunning for a headline, and not anything that like is really going to like you know be upheld on appeal. Yeah, I know this is the kind of thing – this is the reason why our executives have pardon power worked into our constitutions <laughs> is because back in the day, the way that you would handle this is the court convicts her of child pornography and then her parents go to the king and are like, please, this is nonsense. I know we have to follow the law, but like the law doesn't always cover things, you know, and can you please do something about it? And then the king's like, you know, she's probably a good kid. Like I'll issue a pardon and you go about your business. And I think that that was built into the common law you know, back in the day. And they don't do it anymore because it's too political. Uh, and instead, we you know we do have jury nullification, right? And and I know that people you know lawyers frown on it because it makes things unpredictable and it has problems with the enforcement of the law. But I mean, I'd be all of, I think it's an important part of uh, constitutionality and the right to a fair trial and all that stuff. Is this a case? But, I mean, this is a very dangerous thing, right? The kids sending around the naked pictures of themselves. I mean, it's so much of the laws that are against pornography are really to, 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 mainly to the kid, right? Right, exactly, and and yet they're and yet they're doing it. I mean, I th- I think this is a case where the the social norms have not really caught up with what's possible in the technology. No, right, obviously, yeah. No, I mean, we don't we don't have a way of really um, we don't know what the law should be. We don't we don't have a clear the thing, it's just a different. A paradigm than it used to be in terms of what people are capable of doing. How right. do you really, how do you really solidify that? That's you know, a great, to, I mean, that's a great way of putting it, Pete. That we don't know what the law should be, and so it's very yeah. difficult to make a normative statement about all of these, all of yeah. this stuff. You know? Well, you need to parse out. It's not just it's the norm. I mean, I think there you're assuming that norms always map onto onto the laws, but it's actually there's a threefold sort of just juncture. There's technology, social norms, and the laws, and all three of them are kind of out sync, out of sync right, right. with each other. Um, and right. so it's even more complicated than 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 you than you first put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the laws are in place the, in this case to primarily protect children from being coerced into these sorts of things by adults and being abused, right? So that the, the abuser can't say, oh, you send the pictures, and that way I can't get convicted for having them, right? And the idea that if the child sends it, it's still a crime because you're tracking it back to the, to the minor. Yeah, but these things right? are like, these things are like uh, you know, there are no adults involved in a lot of these things with the, you well, know, yeah, the kids. Well, yeah, yeah. Right. And that, you know, and that the kids, I don't know, the kids are sort of falling victim to the very laws that were uh, uh, designed to protect them from from coercion. Right, right, right. So I don't know. Maybe everyone should just be in jail. That would be a good solution. Then they can all have redemptive uh, stories like in the Shawshank Redemption where they, they claw their way out and they return to glory and they're stronger than they were before. Or like Oz, where they all get stabbed in the yard for no reason. I don't know, one or the other. But you know, I mean, theoretically, <laughs> each and every case, I mean, each and every case that we're talking about where like a, like a 15-year-old girl is on trial for child pornography, like what basically happened is that she sent a photo to her boyfriend, and her boyfriend was a douche and shared yeah. them with everyone in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like basically what they – in a way, it's adding, it's adding conviction to like – 
injury and like mortal embarrassment. Haven't you, know, you ever like, been tempted to do that? Ever, like, like when that, some that girl breaks up with you. As, what, send naked pictures of her around? Yeah, haven't you ever been tempted, at least tempted no. to do that when someone breaks up with you? <laughs> I want to go on record and say no. Share <laughs> <laughs> that with. Like, like, what would be the email that you send to me with the naked pictures attached? Like, what would you say? I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't share them with my friends. I'd post them on some website or something somewhere. Like, like, I probably should Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been down for so long. I'm copying our bandwidth to go. Yeah, right, exactly. That's why we've had such trouble keeping the site up. <laughs> and just uh, for Jeez. Uh, no, I no, I would like to say that I would not I would not actually do this because you know my girlfriend does listen to this podcast, but uh <laughs> you know, not that she would ever do anything like that. But the um I I tend to on the occasions when I I have been, you know, the taken uh, naked pictures of a woman, that I tend to establish some sort of um you know uh, are you guys familiar with the concept of mutually assured destruction? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, is that so you I also sure give her a picture of your balls, essentially? Exactly. Or? exactly. No, I also make sure that she has pictures, and so that both of us have a strong disincentive for sharing them, because that we're in a position to like um, create a nuclear amount of embarrassment on both sides. That's not. That's not mutually assured destruction. I look good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh Christ on a crutch. Wait, so why, I have a question. Getting back to the the sexting case, why? Yeah, yeah. Let's get back to that. Have you read anything about why the boyfriend? No, why is the boyfriend not being prosecuted? Uh, because, because maybe because I don't he didn't sharing it. Yeah, he probably should be right. Well, he didn't originate the material. He didn't produce it. But he shared child porn. But it's not as as dire a crime as making it, I guess, and distributing it originally. Although, I, although I bet you in a year it will be. I mean, I bet you somebody's working on some sort of a really awkwardly phrased law, which is basically like, yo, you 15-year-old boys, do not share naked photos of your girlfriend, or else like, we will drag you to child court for it. Do we assume that it's, all, that it's all girls taking the pictures and sending them to boys? Yeah. <laughs> Why are we still talking about this? <laughs> <laughs> this is a pop culture podcast, this not is... a child pornography podcast. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm crying inside right now. <laughs> no, no, because I don't know who it, it takes the pictures. I, I was not there. I don't know what happened, and I'm not going to change that story. I would be very, <laughs> I would be very tempted to. Uh, entitle this episode "Not a Child Pornography Podcast," but I, I think that would get us in all kinds of watch lists. Yeah, especially because you're so you're, you're you know this is one case where being really good with the search engine optimization actually would uh, would hurt you. <laughs> yeah, we're overthinking it's you know reasonably good SEO would uh, yeah would would not help us out. Backfire. Fair. Well, I, I will I will enough. say one thing about it. I will say that the the law and adult society live in a great deal of willful ignorance of the capabilities of children. And to bring it back to the subject, uh, you know who does not live in in ignorance of the capabilities of children <laughs> is is children's movies and children's films, which think that children are capable of doing absolutely everything in the world, up until and including like donning a robot suit to like save the universe. You know, like you see all these child heroes, and the older I get, the less plausible it seems to me that a child could actually do the things that these children do in these children's movies. Um, but I remember when I was young, I didn't think it was impossible. Let's call it, yeah, let's call it Home Alone Syndrome. Exactly. Like, could Kevin actually do the things that are in Home Alone? And the right. older you get, I think the less you think that that's even remotely possible because you have this much diminished opinion of what kids are capable of doing. 
Um, and are, was it that when we were children, we were vain, you know, and we thought we could do these things when we couldn't? Or is it that as adults, we, we convince ourselves that children are incapable of these things because it makes us feel better about ourselves? I don't know. My, my saying about it is that um, if you took away ad- adults, children, children would be the smartest and most devious creatures in the animal kingdom, and we should not underestimate them. <laughs> <laughs> they would be smart and lying. To the panel sure. at large, is there any compelling reason in the movie Home Alone why he does not immediately call the police when they attempt to break into his house? He goes to the police. He goes does- to the police, doesn't he? And they don't do anything about it? I don't recall or, that. Also, so he also he's so he's like a Jack Bauer kind of figure, essentially, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. he, Kevin, Kevin McAllister is one of these people who exists outside of uh, of the Republic, but is necessary for its continuation. Right, absolutely, <laughs> his, you know, and his only weakness is his only weakness is aftershave. Yeah. <laughs> ah! I can't mom, believe oh. I remembered his name. Uh, I guess I guess I just revealed one of my uh, another secret pleasure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love the scene in Dogma. I love the scene in Dogma where Salma Hayek says that the only uh, top ten grossing film of all time that wasn't inspired by like divine muse inspiration was Home Alone, which came from the devil. <laughs> <laughs> but Home Alone is a good movie. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I don't know. Home I guess it was a less good movie though. This is true. It is. They are lost in New York. Home Alone three, I think, is probably even worse. Yeah, I um, mean, Home Alone two is not. As much worse than Home Alone 1, then uh, Home Alone 3 is worse than both of them. Right, right. right. Um, I think everyone can visualize that chart. <laughs> if only Mark were on this. Mark would get the uh, the, uh, the 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 graphic up for, for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we got a spurious correlation going between the level, the number on the sequel and the quality of a Home Alone film. Right. Uh, it'd be a graph. Like one, two, it- three. Three. Actually, you know, the Home Alone is another one of those movies where, like, you really wouldn't think that it would lend itself well to a sequel. Yeah, that's true. That's you know, true. Like, because the of that lead to the, to the setup of Home Alone are kind of like, you know, the odds that they would be repeated are very slim. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, Baby's Day Out. It's like, you would think that if they let the baby out once and Joe Mantegna is chasing it around a construction site, that that would never happen again. Now, I don't think they made a Baby's Day Out sequel, but I'm telling you, what I'm saying right now is we have a million dollar idea right here. <laughs> 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 Although Baby's I assume that it's not like structural, right? I mean, what it, what it reveals is that, Macaulay, uh, that Kevin McAllister's parents are just structurally like sort of lazy and forgetful people, and that they're, they're not really capable of kind of updating uh, or, or learning but rather they make the same mistakes again and again. I guess that experience does bear out that children who have been neglected once are more likely to be neglected again. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> That's sad. Wow, we went from sexting to, you know, child and uh, child welfare. Uh, yeah, what can let we me, do, man? On, on this subject, let me say that Belinky had an idea for a movie that was since made by Hollywood. Uh, Ooh. Not... Which one are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's women in prison. <laughs> because he has he has so many. But um, the uh, uh, the one I'm thinking of was called Unaccompanied Minors, and it involved a bunch of children who fly alone on Christmas Day. Uh, children of divorced parents flying from one parent to another, who are snowed in somewhere on Christmas Day, and then have to, without recourse to adult help or supervision foil some sort of dastardly plot uh you know perpetrated by villains 
Am I, am so I getting it right? So it's Home Alone meets Die Hard 2, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this film was made. It, I believe it was called Unaccompanied Minors. And uh, it kind of came. It had like a song to go with it. Does anyone else remember the song? It's like unaccompanied minors stuck in a snowstorm, stranded at the airport. Are you serious? I think think, like Little Bow Wow was in it or something, so it had a natural. Wait, let me type in unaccompanied minors lyrics. Is that from my favorite genre of movie pop single, which is movies that describe to you songs that describe to you the plot of the movie you just saw, as explained by someone who has not seen the movie? What's your favorite example of that of that type? Throwing a party for a bunch of children when all the while the slime was under the building. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite is T U R T L E Power, the Ninja Turtles song, uh, where like he makes several factual errors. Where he like cites that Raphael is the lead Ninja Turtle, which is just my um my favorite is Gotham City by R. Kelly, <laughs> <laughs> which where he clearly knows nothing about Gotham City because the lyrics are you know a city of justice, a city of peace, <laughs> uh, and a city of love for if every I'm not for every one of us. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this guy has obviously never seen a Batman movie. Yeah, they yeah. should have played that over the credits of The Dark Knight. Um... <laughs> <laughs> or like the Adams Family rap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. They do what they want to do. Say what they want to say. Dance when they want to dance. Wanna... Play what they want to <laughs> play. Dance. Clearly, they dance when they want to dance. They, other people are trying to prevent them from dancing. <laughs> that's what the Adams family is all about. And... <laughs> they are. Yeah. Well, the Adams family is another one of these movies where we need the Adams family, even though they violate all of our social norms. Exactly. They're the Jack Bauer of <laughs> the monsters world, basically. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, thirteen, thirteen, Mockingbird Lane. I don't have time for the address right now. Just give me the GPS coordinates. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I think we will we will call it a podcast. Thank you for listening to us. If you have anything to say about the ridiculousness that you have just heard, uh, from guilty pop cultural pleasures to Dante's Inferno to the Jack Bauer cowboy superhero myth to sexting, the Home Alone sequel uh, syndrome, improbable sequels, anything, email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com or call the podcast voicemail at 20 eat log zero one. That is two zero three two eight five six. Four zero one. Uh, visit the website where you can take the audience survey and tell us about you and who you are. If you haven't done it, do us a favor and go there for that survey. And we are announcing our second week of the chain letter, uh, <laughs> chain letter promotion, uh, yep. viral promotion, where we're asking you to send this podcast to a friend or five friends, and great things will happen to you. Isn't that right, Pete? That's correct. Oh, we'll scroll down. Scroll, make a wish. Scroll down. Scroll down. Okay, if you send this to five people right away, within the next five minutes, your crush will love you. And if you don't, your house will be consumed in flames, and all of your, your, your dog will get sick. I know someone who didn't forward the Overthinking a Podcast to five people. You know who that person was? Momar Gaddafi has never forwarded our podcast. And you know what happened to him? Well, he got to six country, but that's not the point. The point is that horrible things happen. <laughs> horrible things. I promised someone I would reference the movie Major League today, so don't steal home without it. Forward the forward the uh, forward the get podcast over to all your friends because they'll enjoy it, and then they'll think you're cool, and then they'll totally invite you over to play Street Fighter. 
on their Xbox. And while you're at it, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably And now we start that now we start the theme song that has nothing to do with overthinking it. There are four guys on the podcast, and they overthink a lot of things. Why do you need to think about this stuff so much? Why Ryan Shuri just... is the webmaster. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't you just Not shut up gross. and enjoy the movie? Why do you have to tease out all the philosophical implications of it? <laughs> we don't need another hero. Seriously, I deleted another two comments the other day that were like, God, this site is stupid. Why do you guys have to always overthink everything? <laughs> oh, why did you why did you delete them? Those are my favorite comments. I try to maintain Do you leave those comments? <laughs> I try to I try to maintain a certain level of discourse. Which of course this podcast will totally <laughs> destroy. Fair enough. Oh, fair enough. No, this podcast is high variance. We, we, we really, we, we. I mean, it's not like we're just like you know dredging the depths. I mean, we, you know, we, 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 we definitely uh, hit the peaks and the valleys. 